Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts, the medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app. Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Disgraceland fans, thanks for checking out 27 Club. If you're listening to 27 Club in your Disgraceland feed, this is a reminder that 27 Club will only be available in its own feed starting with next Thursday's episode. That would be episode three. So if you love 27 Club, and come on, you know you do, you wouldn't be here listening if you didn't, and you want to hear the rest of the episodes in this series as they're released, then subscribe to 27 Club on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The 27 Club is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis Media. Jimi Hendrix was born on the 27th day of November, and he lived a life full of surprises. I can give you 27 reasons why that statement is true. One would be the exact number of seconds it took him to say yes to pretty much anyone who asked him to do pretty much anything. Six would be the number of strings shooting voodoo sparks out of his heretically strung Fender Stratocaster. Another two would be the number of wannabe wise guys who kidnapped him after a late night club gig in New York City by promising him copious drugs as well as the kindness of strangers. Six more would be the number of bullets in the barrel of the gun that freed Jimmy from captivity and allowed him to keep making music. Music that was causing him to reassess who he was as a musician and who he wanted to be. And 12 would be the number of months he had left to live after he was shoved into the back of a Dodge Dart on West 4th in New York City and taken hostage, all totaling 27. On this, our second episode, a kidnapping, wannabe wise guys, mobbed up club muscle, 
and the always searching Jimi Hendrix. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club. Jimi Hendrix, the most famous guitar player on the planet, went and got himself kidnapped. But nobody was looking for him. Jimi, however, he was looking for something. He was searching, as always. Didn't matter if he was in the clutches of wannabe wise guy bandits or on stage, like he was on that night in September back in 1969. On the night Jimi disappeared, playing a show at the Salvation Club in Manhattan, Jimi Hendrix was looking for something, searching as always. His new band, Gypsy Sun and Rainbows, had taken the stage after midnight. They didn't so much play as they stumbled through a glorified jam session and into the wee hours. Not quite morning, but too late to be considered nighttime. What do you call that time of day? That in-between time? The wee small hours of the morning. Whatever it was, Jimmy stood there, crowded on the small stage of the Salvation amidst a phalanx of martial amps and bongos and instrument cables, sweaty bandmates, restless crowd half-assing interest in the show, side-glancing, looking for the door for an inconspicuous exit. And the room closed in. He felt strangely unfulfilled. Kids waited hours outside in the late summer evening heat for this, paid 10 bucks for this, for a handful of rudderless jams and a bungle through Isabella. Jimmy's microphone didn't even work into the last few songs, and by then he had lost half of the audience. He even let the band's other guitar player, Larry Lee, take over and play lead a number of times. Very un-Jimmy. This wasn't the Jimi Hendrix experience, the groundbreaking power trio that introduced the guitar player to end all guitar players to the world. The experience was velvet and lace, beautiful afros, long flowing capes, and on fuego upside down strats. Fantasy, really. But the experience was in the past, and Jimmy was looking for higher ground, a new trip, a real trip. But this, no. Gypsy Sun and Rainbows was trudging through the mud in low gears, stuck inside the idleness of a tiny Manhattan club for hipsters too aloof to care, too stoned to bother to leave. Mercifully, Jimi Hendrix knew this would be their last show. The tab of purple Owsley LSD he dropped earlier that night had worn off unusually early. Fuck this candy-ass tired summer of love high. Jimmy wanted to get real high, for real high, not LSD, not just a puff on hashish or shrooms or whatever in vogue flower power soft shit was going around the village. Jimmy wanted to feel it. He wanted it heavy. But at the moment, he could do little. So he just stood there, on stage, outnumbered by the marshals in his Indian-patterned shirt, and thought of an attitude-adjusting amount of cocaine to blast up his nose. He thought about a lump of smack rocketing through his bloodstream. He thought of drinking himself into oblivion. He inhaled quick and hard. Devin was sitting by his side, and Jimmy needed to forget this disaster of a show, maybe forget this disaster of a band. This wasn't the sound he was searching for, these weren't the musicians he was searching for. This wasn't the stage he was searching for either. And this wasn't the version of himself he saw 
in his mind's eye. It was all wrong, so he stopped searching for anything that mattered, for the moment anyway. And instead, he began to quickly search for drugs, to get high, real high. To do that, though, at this hour, he'd have to rely on the kindness of strangers, something he was used to doing. The two kids were right there when Jimmy stepped off the stage, and they were waiting for him. Two white kids in their 20s, clean-cut, more old-school New York than far-out swinging London, more sha-na-na than ready-steady-go. The short one had his hands clasped together. He twiddled his thumbs, nervous and starstruck at the same time. His eyes darted around like tilted pinballs. A genderless motherfucker, he was strictly along for the ride. The other one, the alpha dog, lanky motherfucker with the greasy hair, pointed nose, he got right to the point. Jimmy fucking Hendrix, fucking amazing, you are amazing. That Wawa shit was nuts. The short rudderless one unclasped his hands and started to play air guitar. His knees bent, his eyes squeezed shut, his tongue stuck out through clenched teeth and his belly poked out from his t-shirt. Vertical stripes were not his friend. He wailed, sing-songing the riff to Purple Haze. Shame was not part of his repertoire. Shut the fuck up, the lanky one demanded. Jimmy ignored him, focused on the comedy of it all. Lit a cigarette. He grinned from ear to ear. Cool, man. Cool. And that big, enveloping Jimi Hendrix smile took shape. His nostrils flared at max capacity. His eyes strained pleasantly. It was a face that was a friend to everyone. A face that summoned strangers. Charisma to spare. And the lanky one got real cavalier and swung his arm around Jimmy's shoulder. Let's celebrate, man. Jimi Hendrix, you want to get high with us? Everybody must get stoned. Shortstack blurted out, still strumming his invisible guitar. Shut the fuck up, the lanky one commanded, arching his neck away from Jimmy's shoulder to steal a glance in the direction of his partner. The look said one thing. Be fucking cool, man. Suddenly, Jimmy was thinking of Bob Dylan. He loved Dylan. He carried a Dylan songbook with him everywhere. Blonde on Blonde was his favorite Dylan album, the one that encouraged him to sing in his own way and be his own artist. The first time he heard that refrain, everybody must get stoned, he was super high. One of his maiden voyages on LSD. Jimmy was so enamored with Dylan that he released the definitive version of All Along the Watchtower, not even one year after Dylan's original hit record store shelves. Yeah, thought Jimmy. Everybody must get stoned. These cats will too. Jimmy looked at his bandmates, still digging out from the post-gig wreckage on the stage, and turned back to face his new friends. Just moments ago, he stood looking for something, stood there alone. And then these two show up out of nowhere, and maybe they had what he was looking for, and maybe they were a couple of axe murderers. Jimmy chuckled at the thought. They were just nervous fans who wanted to rip a line or two. What's the worst that could happen? Shortstack looked around nervously as Jimmy exhaled a plume of smoke from his cigarette. Dig, man, what you got for me? Jimmy's new friends had something for him, all right. And it wasn't just a friendly invitation to get high. Shortstack hummed an indiscernible melody as the odd-looking trio walked away from the Salvation Club. The lanky one did not waste the opportunity to tell him to shut the fuck up, be cool. 
This is Jimi Hendrix we're walking down the street with. Greenwich Village was alive despite the hour. The street, a tightly packed row of brick buildings. Cars lined the curb. Jimmy trailed closely behind his new friends as they walked down West 4th towards Washington Square Park. Positively. Again, Dylan on the brain. They stopped at a red 64 Dodge Dart, the type with the push-button transmission. It had a vinyl roof and was easy for the two to spot parked on the street. And the lanky one scanned the area. His head and up periscope. Opened the rear passenger door, tapped Jimmy on the arm. Here, man, get in. His voice was suddenly deeper, more resonant, more authoritative, square. Jimmy caught the vibe. The dude wasn't asking, he was telling. Get in the fucking car. Jimmy slid in the back seat and the lanky one climbed in next to him. Shortstack took the driver's seat, turned the key, got the radio going. Edwin Starr's war came thudding from the car's muddy speakers. Shortstack wrapped his thumbs on the steering wheel. Good God, I'm getting high with Jimi Hendrix. Say it again. The lanky one reached into the front pocket of his greasy blue Levi's, extracting from the tight denim a paper bindle of cocaine. He unfolded it carefully, dipped his long, cultivated pinky fingernail into the white powder, careful to move his arm over the back of the front bucket seat toward Jimmy seated in the back. Jimmy dive-bombed the coke, snorting it up in one shot with the same quick grace he used to project sparks from the neck of his strat via the whammy bar he manhandled with the same fingers he currently pressed to the side of his nose. The hit slammed against the back of his throat. Almost immediately, he felt the rush he was looking for. The Salvation Club was no more. Gone, in the past, just like Gypsy Sun and Rainbows were soon to be. No more faulty microphone, no more Larry Lee soloing all over him. He knew the feeling was temporary. It was all temporary. This too shall pass. The good and the bad, fleeting moments of bliss and despair. 1969 was a little more than half over and it already felt like five years crammed into one. It was already a blur. In February, Rolling Stone magazine crowned Jimmy Performer of the Year. Tours followed in England, Sweden, Denmark, West Germany, Hawaii, Canada. One day on stage at the Denver Pop Festival, the next laying down some new tracks at the record plant in New York. He'd wake up the next day and find himself at Olympic Studios in London. The blur was intense. Stage, studio, repeat, geography be damned. It didn't matter where the gig was or what the opportunity was. Jimi Hendrix in 1969 was a man who made the scene. Jam sessions with Billy Preston, with Buddy Miles, with Roland Kirk, with Stephen Stills, with the Cats in Traffic. Quick turns in the producer's chair, guiding the production of songs and records by other artists like Cat Mother and the all-night newsboys, Heir Apparent. Tripping balls in Woodstock, seeing ghosts in Morocco, running for his life in Harlem, up to no good in Austria, blowing minds at the Royal Albert Hall and charming America on The Dick Cavett Show. During the Dick Cavett interview, Jimmy jumped from the blur of his present day and looked to the future. He talked about a world where music was a vital necessity of life, like water or air, that people would need it in order to achieve peace, to achieve clarity, to survive. He had what they needed because he had the music to bring people together, to heal them, to make sense of themselves in a world that was continuing to make less and less sense every day. Jimmy needed it too. He needed the music, he needed the peace, the healing. 
he was no different, and despite his outlandish dress, his cosmic slop talk, and Futuroso guitar slinging, despite all of this, Jimi Hendrix was strangely relatable. But despite whatever connections he was making in 1969, Jimi Hendrix felt off-kilter. He was throwing all kinds of stuff at the wall to see what would stick. Or rather, his manager was doing the throwing on behalf of his guitar superstar. His manager, Michael Jeffrey, had him playing all over God's green earth, touring nonstop and recording in the studio on days in between, creating new contracts to help pay for other contracts. Jimmy sat in the back seat of the Dodge Dart and tried to wipe his mind clean. He needed this, this moment of relief, this oblivion, next to two guys who weren't gonna talk to him about the same old shit again. And they could be as dumb and wandering as they wanted to be. The dumber the better, honestly. He just didn't want to have to think too hard anymore. It was way too late, way too early for anything to stimulate his brain besides a handful of strong drugs. And Jimmy's eyes rolled back. He let his head slump against the window. Felt like he was vibrating, moving forward, going somewhere. He got me floating, round and round, always up. He never let me down. The rush was real, and all he could think about was getting more. He opened his eyes, and the car was moving fast. The car was actually moving, shit. Glance ahead, short stack at the wheel, roaring through restless Manhattan. Glance to his side, lanky motherfuckers got a, wait a minute, what is that? Is that a gun? It was, and the lanky one had it pointed straight at Jimmy, as if Jimmy were going anywhere anyways. He wasn't. But all the same, he wasn't picking up whatever this sha-na-na-looking lanky dude was putting down. Hey man, Jimmy started to mumble. The lanky one cut him off. Shut the fuck up. Put this on. He tossed the red paisley bandana in Jimmy's lap. The kind he'd used to play cowboys and Indians with with your brother if you were 10 and born in 1955. The kind he'd used to wrap your long hair back if you were a biker or a keyboard player in a shitty classic rock band. The kind he'd used to tourniquet your arm if you were a junkie. Or if you were Jimi Hendrix, the kind he'd used to wrap around your afro to secure LSD tabs to your skin with to absorb straight into your brain. Hey, wait a minute, was that even possible? Jimmy was fading. The cocaine was jigsawing through his focus. Yo, fuckhead, blindfold yourself. And then, now, motherfucker, tie it around your head, man. Jimmy laughed. Holy shit, the blow hit him hard. And what the hell was going on in this car right now? What a trip. His friends were not only courteous, but had a sense of humor. Okay, man, I dig it. Jimmy said mildly and tied the bandana to block his eyes. What's this all about? Everything went black. Jimmy, in the dark, a cocaine headache forming in the middle of his forehead. He heard the engine rev, heard the wheels hug the pavement, and a short stack made a left here and a right there. Heard a subway car rumble above ground outside his window. A group of women wooed into the night. He had seen all kinds of headlights approaching from the street before the blindfold went on, and he saw them still, faintly. They faded into the blackness. He felt the nub of the pistol ease into his side. Shortstack took a hard left at a yellow light and let his foot lay into the gas pedal. We got him! We got the voodoo child! Holy shit, that was easy, man! The lanky one cuffed Shortstack on the side of his head with the back of his bony hand. He was fresh out of shut-the-fuck-ups. He glared at Jimmy, stoned out of his head and blind to the world. He stuck his gun in the flap behind the driver's seat. That's right, voodoo child. Standing next to the mountain. Gonna chop you down, voodoo child. Gonna chop you down. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. 
When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Jimmy had lost all concept of time when the Dodge came to a sudden halt. Being blindfolded, he had lost all track of geography, too. He heard the car door open next to him and felt the lanky one push him onto the street. It was quieter than he expected. And they certainly weren't in Kansas anymore. They weren't even in Manhattan. He felt two hands latch onto his left arm and then two more onto his right. And they walked him forward in through a door and tossed him lightly onto a couch. 
Okay, voodoo child, Jimmy heard the lanky one speak. How do we get Michael Jeffrey on the phone? Word got back to Michael Jeffrey that his star was missing, had been kidnapped, and Jeffrey went apeshit. He had been Jimmy's sole manager a few years earlier when Jimmy's original producer and co-manager Chaz Chandler quit. Jeffrey was originally the manager for Chandler's bluesy British invasion band, The Animals. The two went way back to their Newcastle origins. Chandler ran a tight ship, though, and he gave Jimmy an ultimatum when he became concerned with Jeffrey's increased influence. Jeffrey, who could be a shrewd, calculating businessman in one moment, and then drop LSD with his client in the next. Jeffrey, whose past was shrouded in mystery and deception, and who measured his success by how much he could keep others in the dark. His management methods were far from orthodox. His influence seemed counterproductive to a regimented work schedule or to prudent financial accounting, and lately it seemed, to Jimmy anyway, to success. Chaz saw it all coming and laid it on Jimmy. Take your pick. It's him, Michael Jeffrey, or me. Jimmy bet on Jeffrey. Chaz was out. Jeffrey was it now, and Jeffrey's star was gone, in the wind. Jeffrey was already a basket case, sweating the fact that his contract with Jimmy would be up soon, and they had been at odds lately. He was up Jimmy's ass, pushing him to recreate the type of success Jimmy had early in his career, pressuring Jimmy to reform the experience. Jeffrey saw that as Jimmy's greatest accomplishment, but more than artistic success, Jeffrey was chasing dollars. And then there was the matter of the pet project together, Electric Lady Studios on West 8th Street in New York City. State-of-the-art at the time, with vibe to spare, and an early clientele that, in addition to Jimi Hendrix, included Patti Smith, Ronnie Wood, and Steve Winwood, among others. Electric Lady was poised to become one of the best recording studios on the planet, but studios are financial beasts, expensive to build out and expensive to keep going. Studios are like tractor trailers. If they ain't filled up and barreling forward, they're losing money. Electric Lady was built in the ashes of a shuttered nightclub called The Generation. Jimmy's initial plan had been to reopen the nightclub and run it as a late-night jam spot. But his audio engineer, Eddie Kramer, sold him on the concept of a recording studio. They could make more money charging bands by the hour to record than they would running live shows. More money? Jeffrey's ears perked up. That sounded like the right move, the only move. Where Jeffrey saw money, Jimmy saw an opportunity to corral the hippie ideal get lightning in a bottle, the lightning being the growing peace and love movement and the bottle being Electric Lady. Jimmy laid out his dream to a young Patti Smith at the studio's grand opening party. He wanted to find common ground, gather musicians from all around and have them come together over the universal language of music. He called it the language of peace. Jimmy saw peace and Jeffrey saw dollar signs. You say potato, I say potato. But the potato needed help. And the basement level of Electric Lady needed a ceiling that was three layers thick so the sound wouldn't bleed into the movie theater above it. Their contractor accidentally tapped into the Minetta Brook, one of Manhattan's forgotten waterways, and flooded the place. Michael Jeffrey had borrowed lots of money to keep himself, Jimi Hendrix, and Electric Lady afloat, literally and figuratively. And Michael Jeffrey wasn't the type of guy who could go to the bank. So, like most quote-unquote businessmen in the nascent era of the music industry, Michael Jeffrey had a dubious past, so he borrowed from dubious types, mafia types, and he was in deep. He needed the mob because he needed money for Jimmy's new studio, and he needed Jimmy's new studio to be a success to pay back the mob. It was a vicious cycle. In order for success to be guaranteed, he needed Jimmy to play a lot of shows. 
some of them more enticing than others. In short, he needed the bread. Any way you cut it, Michael Jeffrey needed Jimi Hendrix. He needed Jimi by his side, but Jimi Hendrix was gone. So Michael Jeffrey took a page from his star and began searching. But Shortstack and the lanky one had found their calling. It seemed that way to them anyways. They knew Michael Jeffrey. They knew his name, at least, from around. He was the dipshit rock manager who borrowed all that money from who it was tough to say. The guy was a walking, talking vault, and no one talked about Jeffrey owing anything to them. If he could be a rock and roll manager, then so could they, especially because, as they reasoned, fucking philosophers that they were, that if Jimmy had once, not too long ago, been managed by someone else and jumped ship for Michael Jeffrey's mobbed-up ass, then he would surely slide right under their co-managerial wing. They were younger, more on his level, and of course, could score great coke. Jimmy would be stoked. And they got Michael Jeffrey on the phone and explained that they had his meal ticket blindfolded at gunpoint. It was time, and they wanted their slice of mojo. Otherwise, it was lights out in the Red House. They put a bullet in Jimi Hendrix. Bullshit. Michael Jeffrey wasn't about to get out conned by a couple of small-time greasers from the neighborhood, wannabe wise guys stuttering on the other end of the phone. They may have somehow figured out how to steal away one of the most famous faces in rock and roll, but their ill-begotten Spanish castle magic was about to dry up. Michael Jeffrey heard their voices on the other end of the line and called it immediately. Fucking zero cojones, even less intelligentsia, fucking muy mongolo puto madres. Tough guys, <laughs> stuttering about the bullet they put through Jimmy's afro. They didn't have the sand. Michael would show them real tough guys. He hung up the phone and beelined it back to the Salvation Club and talked to John Roberts. John Roberts, AKA Rico Bono, AKA a straight up connected guy, AKA a good fella and highly valued earner for the Gambino family, AKA relative to Staten Island Joe Rico Bono, AKA the guy who helped the mob take over the Salvation Club. Mob guys were all over the payroll. When the Salvation's owner, Bobby Woods, fought against their takeover of his club, he found out the hard way that resistance was futile. The mob had the final say, and Woods was found dead shortly after. A few years later, Rico Bono would cement his spot in sordid history by helping the Medellin cartel move $15 billion of cocaine. Rico Bono was, as the mafia would say, a qualified man. He had a certain set of skills. He knew how to get things done. He knew what to do quietly, efficiently. Word of this would never hit the wires, never make it to the press. No one would know about this but those involved, and no one would ever hear any other bullshit from these clueless kidnappers. Fucking A right. Jeffrey and Rico Bono got short stacking the lanky one on the phone and ran it down real nice and simple. We're coming for you, cocksuckers, and it won't be to give you a joyride in the back of a fucking Dodge. Mount up or fuck off. Loud, quick knocks, big-fisted rat-a-tat-tats. Would the door even hold? Shortstack had his eyes on the leggy blonde on the couch. She was sexy enough, but dangling the half-smoked Winston between her fingers, she was sex on fuego. Shortstack was driven to distraction. Lanky motherfucker was at the breakfast nook, reading yesterday's papers. The post from six weeks earlier. First photos from the moon. His piece was on the table in front of him. They both looked up towards the door. Was that the door? 
Maybe it was coming from the apartment next door. Jimi Hendrix sat on the couch, hands bound together with a loosely strung shoelace. He had been waiting for the right time to slip his hands and make a run for it. And this could be his out. This could be his moment. Chicago's 25 or 6 to 4 blared from the hi-fi, horns and all, waiting for the break of day, searching for something to say. Again, the door, it shook violently this time from the knocking. Jimmy looked at Shortstack, then at the lanky one. Without missing a beat, the lanky one grabbed his piece, jumped from his seat to go for Jimmy, but tripped over his own feet. Shortstack jumped, which in turn made the leggy blonde jump and drop her cigarette under the carpet. And Jimmy stood up and shook the shoelace from his wrist. He laughed as it slid to the floor. Dig it, man, it really had been that easy all along. Open the goddamn door, boomed a voice from the hallway. Shortstack stuck his eye to the peephole in the front door and recoiled. I think it's those guys you were talking to, on the phone, here, at the door. The lanky one was off the floor now, making his way towards Jimmy. Shut the fuck up. It was a new day, a new batch of shut the fuck ups. He got to Jimmy and started to dust him off like he was the Maltese Falcon, pulled on his shirt to straighten it. He went to tidy the afro, but Jimmy put a hand up. Jimmy didn't move a muscle. He knew who was on the other side of that door. Are they experienced? Better believe they are. The door started to buckle from the pressure. It pulsed inwards in short jabs, one big push at a time. Shortstack pushed back with a muted grunt. Dancing lights against the sky, giving up, I closed my eyes. The door gave way and flung open into the room. Shortstack hit the ground. The lucky blonde screamed, scattered to the bathroom, slammed the door shut. The lanky one kept petting Jimmy's clothes. His gun nervously pointed at his would-be prisoner. Jimmy stood there, just smiled. Michael Jeffrey and Rico Bono stood in the doorway. Behind them, three more guys in a line. Each guy got scarier the further back you looked. Each successive guy looked like he gave less of a shit. No one was smiling, and they all had guns drawn. The blonde was shrieking in the bathroom. Did we not make ourselves clear over the phone, you Bush League muck of Ferguson's Jeffrey Bellow? Which one of you is Tweedledee, Rico Bono followed. And the crew pushed into the apartment, guns drawn professionally, qualified men, capable men. The lanky one felt his bladder inflate. Enrico Bono grabbed Shortstack by the back of his neck and pulled him up. Before the lanky one could react, one of the nameless muscle thugs went right for him. He was like a deer in headlights. A deer in headlights with a gun in one hand and a hunk of a guitar hero's frilly shirt in the other. Urine started to slowly creep up from his BVDs and down his leg. Muscle Thug took his gun. A cinch, Jeffrey thought. Fucking douchebags. They got lucky. Whether or not they'd remain lucky would be up to Rico Bono. It was his show now. Jeffrey would let him manage the rest of the situation, and he'd go back to managing his talent. Jeffrey gave Jimmy a hug. Distance, stalled business, no emotion. With his arm around Jimmy, he made a beeline for the front door, and they were gone. Rico Bono's goons rounded up the lanky one in short stack and walked them back toward the bathroom where the blonde was holed up. Her shrieks continued to soundtrack the whole ordeal. Rico Bono nonchalantly asked, you two didn't get the memo, did you? What, your pussy's got your tongue? I asked you a question. Did you or did you not get the memo? What memo, the short one asked, fear bringing the words out of his mouth with more urgency than he intended. The one that said, we don't negotiate with no jerk-offs. And then he laughed. His eyes met Shortstack's, who had turned his head to look back as they were marched down the hall towards their fate. I'm laughing at you, Pancake, because you and your boss here are a couple of jerk-offs. Thugs and wannabe thugs short-parading it to the end of the dark tenement hallway. 
Rico Bono threw open the bedroom door, searching for the source of the screams. Could have sworn they were coming from inside here. But the room was empty. Okay, wait. It had to be this other door. Rico Bono nodded his head toward the bathroom, and Leggy Blonde's muffled screams came rushing out in stereo surround as one of his goons opened the door. His short stack and the lanky one were muscled inside with her, and the goons followed, packed in tighter than the crowd at the Salvation. The bathroom door slammed shut. A thud, another thud, a third thud, and Leggy Blonde's screams stopped. Rico Bono's boys didn't have to search no more. And as he made his escape with Michael Jeffrey, Jimi Hendrix reflected on the fact that this was the second time in a matter of months that he'd had his life threatened by a couple of goons. And this was the second time in a matter of months that he had a run-in with killers. And this time was scary, sure, but the last time was nearly as ominous. This time with Shortstack, the lanky one, and Rico Bono's mob muscle, the scary shit happened under the cover of night, as it should. But the last time, up in Harlem, it happened in broad daylight by a couple of couldn't-give-a-shit gangsters. Jimi Hendrix could feel his mortality, and Jimi Hendrix feared for his life. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club. Thanks everyone for listening to 27 Club. Quick note, if you're listening to 27 Club in the Disgraceland feed, in order to hear future episodes of this show, you're going to need to subscribe to 27 Club on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts after this episode. 27 Club will only be available in its own feed. All right. The 27 Club is scored and co-written by me, Jake Brennan. Zeth Lundy is the lead writer, editor, and co-producer. The 27 Club is mixed and engineered by Sean Cahalan and Matt Bowden, both of whom lent their considerable music talent to the scoring of this series as well. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker. The 27 Club is produced by myself for Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Sources for this episode are available at doubleelvis.com on the 27 Club series page. The 27 Club is released weekly every Thursday. Season 1 features 12 episodes on Jimi Hendrix, and Season 2 will feature 12 episodes on Jim Morrison. If you like what you hear, please be sure to subscribe to The 27 Club on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to win a free 27 Club poster designed by the man himself, Nate Gonzalez, then leave a review for 27 Club on Apple Podcasts or hashtag subscribe to 27 Club on social media and we'll pick two winners each week and announce them on the Double Elvis Instagram page. That's at Double Elvis. You're going to want to give that a follow. So get out there and please spread the word about the 27 Club. As always, you can find me blabbing about other crazy rock stars on my other podcast, Disgraceland. And you can talk to me per usual on Instagram and Twitter, at DisgracelandPod. One way or another, I hope to be talking to you soon. Until then. What's up for your ears? 
Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.